Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person seeking unity. Now, unity is not conformity. Um, there's this wonderful writer, Mary Parker Follett, and she was writing at the turn of the century, and she's considered one of the best business thinkers, male or female, in the last century. Harvard lists her as one of the best business thinkers, Mary Parker Follett. But she writes about um, democracy and unity, and one analogy she uses to describe unity is that of a piano keyboard. It's like the key of a piano. The value is not being one one fifty six of all notes, but it's in its infinite relation to all notes. So in other words, we're all like a little key on piano, and how do we get together in a harm, harmonious ways? So when it comes to public policy, how do we make jazz? You know, that's what our climate crisis needs right now. We need jazz. And that's our topic for today, a dynamic and unified response to the climate crisis. And in studio with me is a member of a bipartisan group, uh, Citizens Climate Lobby. Hi, welcome, Bill. Good morning, Laura. Bill Middleclamp. And tell us a little bit about your involvements. Well, I've been a member of Citizens Climate Lobby for about 12 years. And uh, I have been... uh, an activist in my community trying to educate people about the issue of climate change. Drawing on my background as a meteorologist, I, I started my career there but didn't stay in that field. But uh, I love the science and I, I love to talk to people and be out in the public trying to uh, move the needle on this issue. And joining us by phone is the board, board policy chair, Greg Rock, of a group called Carbon Washington. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Great. So tell us a little bit about uh, Carbon Washington. Uh, Carbon Washington was probably at least first and best known for launching the first carbon tax initiative in the United States. It was for a revenue neutral carbon price, similar to CCL's approach, although it wasn't a dividend per capita. It was a reduction in the state sales tax. Um, Policy uh, initiative did not pass, um, but we've continued to remain very active in the Washington State Legislature and advocating specifically for uh, bipartisan climate policies, places where we can get Republicans and Democrats in agreement uh, that this is a good way to act on this great challenge before us. And uh, one thing that drew my attention is there's a story out this week, Stakeholders Unite to Support Sustainable Farms and Fields. So tell us about that. Yeah, so we um, have done a lot of work around sequestration, which is one potential mitigation strategy for the climate challenge we're facing. And we started with um, a, just a simple memorial that looked at biochar, a very fascinating way to sequester carbon and can really enhance soil health as well. And then after passing that memorial uh, last year, we started advancing legislation on the topic, uh, specifically a bill called the Sustainable Farm Fields Bill. Uh, it would create a voluntary grant program for farmers and ranchers and aquaculturists to either reduce their pollution through efficiency measures or sequester carbon in their soil or landscape uh, by storing it in trees, vegetation, or even kelp uh, in the aquaculture settings. And so it creates an incentive-based competitive grant program run by the conservation districts um, to deploy funds to farmers and ranchers that can basically sequester carbon uh, on their landscape or reduce their emissions. Right. Last week we had uh, land stewardship projects. Uh, George Booty on, and you, farmers can um, farmers are on the the front lines of the climate crisis right now. They, they certainly are. I mean, if you think about one group that's probably the most disproportionately impacted in the United States, uh, it's going to be the farmers. Uh, climate change is affecting the, the climate patterns. We're getting heavier and more wet rainfall when we don't want it. We're getting dry spells when we don't want it. And so that concentration of thermal energy makes more extreme weather conditions. And those extremes are very difficult for farmers to work with. So from an adaptation standpoint, climate uh, farmers and ranchers have a lot of work ahead of them, I think, as the climate keeps changing. But more excitingly, they also can be a huge part of the solution. Uh, the, the ability to store carbon in our agricultural soils is massive. Um, and you, when you think about carbon dioxide, you don't want it in the atmosphere where it's causing climate change. You don't want the ocean absorbing it where it causes acidification that kills our shellfish. Um, but it turns out the more carbon we get into the soil, the healthier our soil becomes. And so it's a real win-win um, that we can get healthier and more productive agricultural lands while at the same time 
pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and storing it in our soils, which benefits climate. But sometimes when we're in this space, it's hard to find consensus because uh, it, it can be hard to find consensus. Now, in, in, in the state of Washington, you are finding consensus in, in the rural areas on uh, climate solutions. Tell us about that. Well, I think it's an engagement issue. Um, you know, when this bill first came out last year, we did not have consensus. Uh, the, the concept was new. Um, there wasn't a robust stakeholder outreach and engagement program, part because our, our organization is small and we lack the financial resources to do that, but also in part of with the bipartisan group of legislative sponsors we are working with, kind of keeping the bill close to the chest until they were sure they wanted to release it, because we had a very high-powered uh, bipartisan sponsorship group for this bill. Um, so when the bill came out, there was a lot of kind of knee-jerk reaction from the farm and ranch community, I think, about this being a climate bill. And typically, um, climate action has been either regulatory on the agricultural sector or in, in, in pressing new prices on the sector. And so there's a lot of gut reaction that this is going to be bad for us. Um, and this policy is, in fact, particularly good for farmers and ranchers. It's a voluntary incentive program to encourage them to enhance their soil health and productivity of their farms um, that also happens to be benefiting climate change. And so a lot of the effort over the past year that has shifted stakeholders from opposition to now support, and big, big stakeholders like the Farm Bureau, the Washington Dairy Federation, um, if you name just a few, the Cattlemen Association, the Wheat Growers Association here in Washington. Um, and, and a lot of that shift came from engagement, walking them through the bill, taking the time over the interim since last legislative session to really look at how this would play out, explaining you know what the motivations are and what the benefits are to the farmers and ranchers, as well as a real on-the-ground outreach effort that we did at Carbon Washington, or a grassroots organization, so we spent most of the last six months going and talking to farmers and ranchers. We built a support list of over 100 farm operations in Washington State uh, that support the bill. And all of that kind of culminates to build, you know, you raise understanding, you integrate comments and changes from stakeholders. I mean, this bill has improved dramatically from where it was last year in the comprehension. Um, instead of using terminology that doesn't really resonate or isn't understandable for a typical farmer and rancher, uh, we spent a lot of time integrating in more terminology and kind of making the bill easier to understand for uh, a, a less technical audience. So this last meeting, you had 81 stakeholders and everyone with no one opposing the bill. We had no opposition, which is great. There was a few people that are still other. I think there's a lot of questions still swirling around this bill about how we fund it in a particularly difficult non-budget year. This is our legislative session uh, is a two-year legislative session, and, and this is not the budget year, so money is very tight, especially because there was recently in a, uh, uh, an initiative here that removed a lot of the fee revenue on car tabs. Um, so people are in, leg in the legislature are scrambling to find any little pieces of money, and there's still, I think, some, some lingering concern that we don't want this program to compete with existing conservation efforts. We want this to be a program that is attracting new money into the agricultural sector. And, and we want it to create a landscape where farmers and ranchers and aquaculturists can compete with other programs that are designed to create carbon reductions, whether that's a solar program or a vehicle electrification program. There's measurable carbon reductions that are associated with those programs, and we want to develop a program that's creating measurable carbon reductions and sequestration in the ag and natural resource sector so they can advocate for some of that carbon money. Because we spend a lot more on carbon reductions here in Washington than we do on agricultural sustainability. Um, and this is how we see being able to bridge that gap and get some of that carbon money into the agricultural sector. So we have about two minutes left. Tell us what's in this bill, the Sustainable Farms and Field Campaign. That What, what are the specifics in the bill? Um, well, there's really three specific activities that are funded. One is to reduce the emissions of your farm ranch operation on an efficiency basis. So more precision agriculture equipment, uh, GPSs on tractors, anything that can kind of reduce your fossil fuel footprint. Um, and then two other buckets. One is around agroforestry, so that's windbreaks or 
riparian buffers, storing carbon in trees within an agricultural setting. And then the final one is just around soil carbon. Uh, so we've heard about that from carbon farming or regenerative agriculture. These are practices to get carbon stored in the physical soil, uh, which typically is enhancing the soil health, the water retention, pH balance, and all these other factors. That's so cool. And the thing that I really, um, uh, really caught my attention is how you were able to form this um, coalition across differences. Um, how did you do that? Well, like I said, it's really it's conversation. Um, you know, we we I think have established ourselves as a very moderate climate action organization. Um, we are expressly non political, um, and so we've cre- we've been working hard over the past four or five years to carve out a space where Republicans feel comfortable that they can engage with the group on climate. Um, but this was our first time engaging with these farm stakeholders, and it took it wasn't overnight. You know, it took a year of conversations and continuously working with them to improve the bill, uh, make the bill something that they can be comfortable with, which didn't require changing the intent. All it required was changing the terminology and the language that was being used so that it was more understandable for their membership. I love that. Thanks. Okay, um, um, Greg Rock, and how can people find out more about your organization? Uh, you can visit uh, www.carbonwa.org and find out all sorts of stuff about us. That's awesome. So thank you so much, Greg Rock uh, with Carbon uh, Washington. Uh, they tried uh, the, and, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Minnesota, Citizens Climate Lobby. How do we connect? How do we find this unity? How do we move forward to a sane, kind place? When you need legal assistance, let the Minnesota Lawyer and Referral Information Service help you find the right attorney. It's a new and enhanced program of the Hennepin and Ramsey County Bar Associations. They have professional, experienced referral counselors who can connect you to vetted attorneys practicing in employment law, divorce, bankruptcy, DUI, and much more. Take the stress out of finding a lawyer. Call 612-752-6699 or go to mnlawyerreferral.org. The right call for the right lawyer. People of the warmth, charm, and great food at Milton's 36 and Douglas in Crystal. Tonight, try their Vittles, Vino, and Beer, a full slab of baby back ribs grilled over mesquite charcoal, juicy jerk chicken with Caribbean beans and rice, grilled plank salmon, and their famous shrimp and grits. Try a Milton's ribeye or the portobello mushroom and end your night with carrot cake, bananas foster, or rum cake. The perfect meal for a date or a casual get-together. That's Vittles, Vino, and Beer at Milton's 36 and Douglas in Crystal. Native Ritz Radio is proud to announce we've added an extra hour. Yeah, Chushke, one hour goes by too fast. That's right, Uncle Curtis. I'll have extra time to share important information about our sacred animals. And report national and native news from all over the country and Canada. This new hour is sponsored by Robbins Kaplan LLP, dedicated to redefining excellence for high-stakes litigation representation in Indian country. Saturdays from 1 to 3 p.m. We are awake. My part-time service in the Army National Guard makes it possible for me to be more for the community I call home. I'm a better neighbor because my service has taught me how important it is to be a team player. My training helps me in my classes when I give attention to detail to the task at hand. My service also allows me to be there for my community in ways others can't. I help my hometown recover after nature strikes. My service in the Army National Guard allows me to keep my country and those I care about safe from threats. I also work with a network of professionals that help me succeed. Also, the Army National Guard's education benefits make getting a higher education a reality. Being an Army National Guard soldier makes living and serving in my community more rewarding every day. Learn more about how you too can live and serve part-time, close to home, by visiting NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Minnesota Army National Guard. Aired by the Minnesota Broadcasters Association and this station. At Better Futures Minnesota, we believe everyone deserves a fair shot. We believe in personal redemption and second chances, and that those who are dedicated to change and hard work should have the opportunity to achieve success and make a positive impact in the community. The men we embrace and serve have made mistakes, but they aren't bad people. We work with men who take responsibility for their past and are committed to doing better, who work to create a better life for themselves, their family, and the community. Learn more at BetterFuturesMinnesota.com.
Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person um, seeking unity. And uh, how do we find um, we are dealing with a cl- climate crisis, and it's not just the humans on the planet that's dealing with the climate crisis, the insects, the pollinators, the soil, the water. I mean, once you start looking at the cost of our human culture on the planet, it can be quite devastating. And so how do we find the resilience to wake up to what is occurring and 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 and, and forge and forge a, a sane kind path forward. And so, how do we do that, Bill? <laughs> Can you answer that for me? <laughs> Bill Mid- Middlecap is with uh, with me in studio right now. So, thank you, h- thank you. How do you. we do that, Laura? I think one of the most uh, exciting ways to get involved is to join the Citizens Climate Lobby. The Citizens Climate Lobby's preferred climate change solution is to put a price on carbon pollution and allocate the proceeds directly to Americans by a monthly dividend check to spend as they see fit. Since 2009, CCL has been advocating for this policy under the name Carbon Fee and Dividend. In 2018, the Bipartisan Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act was introduced to both chambers of Congress. The bill, H.R. 763, has been reintroduced into the House of Representatives in 2019. Citizens Climate Lobby supports this bill and is working towards its reintroduction in the Senate and its passage through Congress. And it's 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 hard to get these passed, um, but um, I, I think they're the overwhelming. That that putting uh, that taxing carbon, putting a fee on carbon, is one of the most powerful things we can do. Why is that? Well, you're absolutely right. There are many economists who say that this is an almost free way to solve this problem, or at least to contribute to the solution to this problem. The carbon fee and dividend. Strategy has been successfully used in British Columbia and other places around the world, and now it's being deployed in multiple forms across all of Canada because they've seen how successful it, it works, and it's popular with people in Canada. The policy places a predictable, steadily rising price on carbon and other greenhouse gases, and then all fees that are collected, minus administrative costs, are allocated in equal shares to all Americans in the form of a monthly check. In just 12 years, such a system would reduce carbon emissions by at least 40%. Studies show that it would also add 2.1 million jobs, and the money that it puts into the economy through that check that individual members of society get builds the economy, and especially in, in lower-income areas where that amount of money makes a big difference. Oh, so are you saying we don't have to decide between either uh, being able to feed ourselves in this jobs or having a livable planet? We can have both jobs and a livable planet? Absolutely right. This builds the economy. This builds the economy. Status quo costs money. The status quo way we get energy is getting more and more expensive. And this strategy actually reverses that trend and makes the economy stronger. So, yeah, because it is hard because right now I understand that both wind and solar is actually economically um, competitive with a lot of the fossil fuel industries. That's right. What this bill effectively does is it tilts the playing field so that – Dirty solutions that add greenhouse gases to the environment become gradually more expensive. It starts at a a low amount and builds over many years so that it isn't a shock to the system. People have an opportunity to change. But as things become more expensive, the things that cause problems become more expensive, and the things that solve problems become relatively less expensive. With that money people have in their pocket from the dividend, they can go to the market. They can make their own choices. We don't have the government telling us what works and what doesn't work. That depends on the free market. Once the playing field is leveled to account for negative externalities that we all know is is harming the environment and harming people around the world today. And that's an important word, externalities. And so how uh, how does an economist, when they talk about cost externalities, what do they mean? Great question. So an externality is basically, if you think of a three-party transaction where you have somebody who's producing a good, somebody who's buying the good, those two people benefit from that transaction. And then you have a third person who suffers in some way and doesn't benefit from that transaction. That's the negative externality. So in our society where we have people who are producing fossil fuels for our use and we have people who are consuming them and enjoying the benefits of that, But then across the whole world, and especially in the poorest areas of the world, people are suffering from changing climate that makes it harder to live where they live. 
and that's causing disruption because those people are leaving those areas and causing problems around the world with the movement of people. I heard this story this week uh, about this couple in Australia, and because the, the pollution was so bad from the fires, they mm. sent their toddler to China. Oh my gosh! And now there's oh. the, the child uh, stuck. The toddler stuck in. in, in I the see China where this area. is going. Yeah, and it, it was it was it was it was it was a really um, it, it really grabbed my heart because in in so many it's almost like people are looking at climate changes that's out there it's coming but it's actually here right now it's here right now absolutely there are good studies that show that the troubles that are in the middle east are really the result of climate change or at least in part you know those farmers lost the ability to grow crops they lost the ability to survive on the land so they moved to the cities where they were mistreated and that caused uprisings and you know just a collapse of, of what had been stable for many generations. And so you get to this basic economic thing. It's like, okay, I'm driving my car, and I am still driving a car. It's yep, not an energy-efficient car. Yep. You know, I've got, a, I've got an energy-efficient car. But I'm driving my car, so I'm buying the gas. Um, and so, but none of the cost of that, none of the cost of that carbon is included in the the environment. And the, the, the cost to our, our climate is not included in that economic equation. So if we put a fee on carbon... We increase the price that I pay for gas, then I'm far more likely to look at more energy-efficient cars, for instance. Absolutely right. And, you know, there's so many products and services in our society where we don't have any idea how much of an impact they have. Well, this system really painlessly imposes those costs in a way that we don't have to think about. We just, like I said, go to the market and make our choices. I want to make it clear that this system puts the fee at the source. So it's a very efficient and very, you know, we don't worry about that. We don't see a tax listed on the on the sticker on the on the shelf when we go to buy a product. Rather, at the mine or at the wellhead, at the very source of where these carbon and other greenhouse gases are produced, uh, they pay the fees, and then that just infuses the whole system, and it comes down to us in, in, in that final price we see on the shelf. Because right, one of the things, and I remember feeling kind of frustrated and angry when I learned about it, but cars have actually become less efficient. As we have learned that climate change is real, and as we're facing more and more devastating effects of climate, the miles per gallon that the average person gets in the car it's going the opposite way. We're driving bigger and bigger cars, even though we all know about this. And yet, if people started paying the real cost of gas at the gas station, that would be likely to change behavior. Well, I lived through those energy crises in the 70s, and I know how that impacted people, and I know what effect it had to have a higher price for the fuel, um, especially uh, when when we felt like at the time that uh, there was a limit to how much of that energy there would be. Well, now we found that there's a lot more uh, fossil fuel resources than we can afford to use. And so we need to impose a price on, on the use of those fuels to reflect the cost to the society that they, they incur. But this is also a fee and dividend. That's so right. The average, the average person would actually get more money back from the dividend part of well, this. Well, so... And we can talk more about that when we come back on break. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Seward Co-op, serving the community for nearly 45 years, invites you to shop their two convenient locations, both offering the strong commitment to local producers and healthy foods you've come to expect. Seward focuses on locally grown and raised products, fair trade, and environmental sustainability. Shop their selection of meats, artisan cheeses, and house-made baked goods. Find Seward at 2823 East Franklin Avenue or the Friendship Store on 38th Street and 3rd Avenue in Minneapolis. More at seward.coop. Do yourself a favor and check out the amazing cuisine of EatLocalMinnesota.com. More than just a website, EatLocalMinnesota.com provides you with the best local and independently owned restaurants in the Twin Cities. The award-winning Hazel's Northeast combines the feel of a small-town diner with the vibrant nature of its Northeast Minneapolis neighborhood. Whether it's breakfast, lunch, weekend brunch, or dinner, their classically inspired and creatively prepared American comfort food is always made from scratch. Hazel's Northeast at 29th and Johnson in Northeast Minneapolis. EatLocalMinnesota.com 
The dedicated staff at Nightingale Restaurant take pride in presenting a thoughtful and delicious approach to food and drink, whether you're visiting for dinner, happy hour, or brunch. Their focus on made-from-scratch meals using sustainable and local ingredients is likely to make Nightingale your go-to spot for inspired food and drinks. Nightingale, Lindell and 26th in Minneapolis. Connections Radio Show is all about tapping into our hardwired hunger to connect. We examine meaningful connections to ourselves, our community, and the world around us by opening the door to innovative insights by a wide variety of interesting guests. We'll make the connections to something bigger than ourselves. Join me, Lori Fitz, your host of Connections Radio Show, and together we'll make the connections. Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Tom Hartman here for All Energy Solar. One of the myths about solar is that you save more if you wait, but waiting to switch can actually cost you more. While tax rebates make solar affordable, those rebates are often limited and decrease over time. So when you wait, you risk losing some of the incentives that make solar so easy to afford today. And besides, the sooner you get your All Energy Solar system, the sooner you reduce or even eliminate that high electricity bill. Make the switch today at allenergysolar.com. Hi, this is Charlie. Dad, don't embarrass me by making me say this. What does a used iPhone go for today? Fine. My dad is the greatest fantasy football player of all time, Matt McNeil. I won our league this year! Ugh. When I'm getting together with my friends without my dad, we always go in my Sienna. Not only does it drive great in winter conditions, but it can easily fit all my friends with seating up to eight. My son's friend's parents request he drive because he has a Sienna. It tells you everything you need to know about their safety and reliability. See for yourself at Rudy Luther Toyota, 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. With your AM 950 weather, this is Eric Nelson. Today, cloudy skies with a high of 33, and tonight, a low around 10. Sunday, mostly sunny with a high of 23 and a low around 20, while Monday has a chance of snow with a high of 32 and a low of 12. Tuesday will be partly sunny with a high of 19 and a low of zero. EatLocalMinnesota.com's Restaurant of the Week is The Great Wall. The Great Wall Restaurant has been providing a delicious mix of both Szechuan and Peking dishes since 1981. Check out their location just north of 50th and France in Edina. Try to see it my way Do I have to keep on talking till I can go Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and we're talking now with uh, uh, Bill Middlecamp. Uh, Bill Middlecamp is with the uh, Citizens Climate Lobby. And when we went to break, we were talking about the carbon fee and dividend. Um, this is a solution to climate change. We've got a price carbon. And uh, economists around the world say you put a price on carbon, it's one of the most effective ways for us to change now. So, But now for someone who says, hey, it's – 20 bucks I have to pay 30 I have a, I have a fishing car it's 20 dollars a week for me to pay for gas but but for some people it can be really scary to pay extra at the pump um, so uh, what would you say to these people how, how does that dividend part fit fit into this well first of all I want to point out that people who are wealthy spend more on carbon than people who are on you know less at the lower end of the spectrum of wealth and so the net effect for people at the low end is that they will see more money in their pocket, uh, that if the, although some things will cost them more, uh, they will see that their net effect is that they're ahead of the game. And we've had a lot of people who are biking, who are not using carbon. They put solar on their house. They yes. did all the right things because uh, they did all the right things. Those people would get an economic boost. They would met, they net effect for them would be the best, right? Okay, so tell us um, again, um, in case someone's just catching up right now, um, uh, Citizens Climate Lobby has been going for a carbon fee and dividend. What does that mean? Where is it at in terms of legislation? Well, the legislation, first of all, the policy that uh, Citizens Climate Lobby is proposing is bipartisan. Uh, the caucus or the coalition in the House, the federal House, uh, is currently at 78 co-sponsors, and they are balanced. Every liberal that joins that that I'm sorry what it's called, caucus or coalition, uh, they have to find a conservative to join with them. It always has to be in balance. And so to say that there are 78 co-sponsors is really pretty amazing that the number has grown to be that big. Um, and that is – and that's why I started with this carbon Washington that they um – 
they get the Farm Bureau and a lot of groups that are uh, sort of associated with one side of the aisle to actually come together in the sense of, uh, of, of unity, uh, which is uh, – I think I think that, that unity is really, you know – Right. Is a fundamental what we need to solve. Uh, we're not going to do this with our tribe alone, are we? Well, you know, the, the values for conservative values, one of the, the main conservative values is that they believe that regulations are harmful to the economy. Uh, liberals tend to believe that regulations are important and necessary in order to maintain the quality of life. The conservatives feel that uh, we we need fewer regulations. One of the benefits of this uh, H.R. 763 is that for five years there's a pause on new regulations on greenhouse gases. So the the conservatives see that they get that benefit of having fewer regulations because this regulation or this carbon fee and dividend uh, is much greater than any other regulations that that are on the table. Um, so, but on the other side of the coin, if the system doesn't work, then after five years it's re-evaluated, and if in fact uh, it's not having the effect that we need it to have, then other regulations kick in. So both sides get something, and that's what's really key to the negotiations in, in getting this progressed. Right, and I want to talk a little bit about your personal background. So okay. um, you studied a little meteorology? Hi, my first degree is in meteorology. I actually worked uh, at a television weather station for a little while. Uh, it turned out that um, it wasn't the career for me. My wife said that I didn't like being wrong all the time. <laughs> uh, but actually, at the time, the, the computing industry was just exploding, and uh, I made a very fortuitous cha- choice to, to go into that field and just recently retired from that. So why has the climate crisis grabbed your heart? Well, actually, part of why I got interested in meteorology is that I found a paper back in the early 70s that talked about the effect of human causes on the climate. In particular, this was talking about an increase in the range of the desert south of Sahara, the so-called Sahel region, uh, and the people who were suffering there as a result of that. And uh, that just, you know, fascinated me. I'm a kind of a holistic person, and I wanted to see how do all the pieces fit together. Well, although I left the field, I never stopped loving the science, and I kept a watch on the progress of the science and the progress of the politics around this issue. And I noticed, for example, that George H.W. Bush actually campaigned on the need to address climate change. However, when he got into office and tried to push that, he found that he didn't have the political will to to, to do it. Uh, and then uh, in the in the early 2000s, I saw that things were really getting kind of muddy, and I decided that I would have to bring that expertise that I had from my first degree, dust it off and catch up and become involved in, in this issue. So I've spent a lot of time talking to people in the public. I, I belong to several different organizations where we put on regular events. In fact, there's one tonight. We're having a screening down in uh, at the Burnhaven Library in, in uh, yeah. sorry, Wrong day. <laughs> well, yeah, we're taping this on Thursday, and so, but it will air yeah, this Saturday yeah, and yeah. Sunday. But tell us how there are a lot of events going on. So, what are some of the events that our, li- our listeners may want to connect with? <clears throat> so, um, I don't have a list of events at my fingertips, but uh-huh. there is one coming up in March. I believe it's March 29th, where I'm going to be leading a, a session of what's called Enroads, facilitating a session. Enroads through climateinteractive.org is a new simulation tool that allows everybody. You can go there today. You can go on the web and play with this software tool. It basically pulls all the science into one easy-to-use interface where you can adjust the sliders and see what happens. So you can say, what if we put a high carbon tax on? Or what if we ban coal? Or what if we develop a new carbon capture and storage technology? Or what about fusion? What if we finally get fusion to work? Or how about if we plant trees or stop deforestation or all these different things? And then you can see what happens, and then you can learn from that. You can adjust your own perception of what's really going on and become more familiar with it. You know, research shows that people don't learn from listening to research. (laughs) This interactive tool allows people to take a hands-on approach and experiment. It's play what-if scenarios and see, you know, what if we really do 
pour a lot of energy into into more windmills or electric cars? Uh, what does it do to the economy? What does it do to the fuel sources that we use? And what, most critically, does it do to the temperature at the end of the century? Cool. So how do people um, get information about this? And roads? And people can always go to Citizen Climate Lobby, um, that website? That's right. Um, so we have an organization down in Lakeville called Lakeville Friends of the Environment that puts on some of these events. You can follow them. I'm a member of a faith-based group called Interfaith Creation Care South Metro. And if you Google that, you'll find our website, and we advertise events there. We also have uh, email lists that you can join up and, and be sent notifications of these things. Um, but the, you know, and why? Why should? Isn't it the situation so horrible right now that no individual action is going to make any difference? Anyhow, the most important individual action is voting. We get the government we want, and we need to choose more wisely. We need to choose people who accept science. Uh, there's a great quote that uh, you know, we are. Many people are living under the illusion that. We can do things the way we've always done and we'll be just fine. The quote is, when an illusion dies, that's the beginning of wisdom. And we need for people to take a, an honest look at what is really going on, uh, what does the science really say, and recognize that the vast majority of scientists, in several studies it's shown that over 97% of the scientists who actively work in this field are accepting the science. There's, we know so much about this. You know, when I found that paper back in the 70s, there were only a few dozen papers, maybe 70 or 80 papers on the topic. Today there's tens of thousands of papers and many, many studies. Scientists, uh, my favorite scientist is Catherine Hayhoe. She says that there's 26,500 ways <laughs> that we observe the effects of climate change in the real world. Um, so how do we solve it? And we need hope. We need to understand that there are solutions that can work. We can solve this problem. And we also need to recognize that human psychology plays a big part of this. Nobody wants to make a sacrifice to solve this problem, or at least those who do uh, won't do it long enough to solve the problem. We need to design solutions that give people the rewards that they seek. At the end of the day, we're psychological creatures. Everybody wants their reward at the end of the day. So that's what I like so much about the carbon fee and dividend solution is that it really uses human psychology, allows people the freedom of choice to choose what solutions they want. You can continue to drive a Hummer if you want to. It'll just get more and more expensive. But you know, I've been driving an electric car for eight years, and I pay $12.50 a month to power that car. So, I mean, there's there's rewards built into the system, freedom of a choice built into the system, right. and so but, on. But a lot of times, and I know uh, we're also members of Dakota County Electric, so we paid extra to have the windmill. So we, we're paying extra, but it seems like a lot of... Voluntarily. Voluntarily. Right. So a lot of us that have been trying to do things, we actually end up having to pay extra. And so one of the things yeah. about this is to do something a little different. Now, you're also running for Dakota County Electric Board. Thank you. Well. Yes, I am. Yes, I, I want to take this passion that I have for talking to the public and try to build the best solution in a collaborative way. I believe that the key to solving our energy issues in an economical, reliable, and a clean, sustainable way is to have a good relationship between the producers and the consumers. For example, that electric car that I have uses electricity at night. I drive it during the day, but it charges at night, which is when the electrical system is least utilized. And so there's a lot of capital investment sitting idle at night, and any, electri any extra electricity that can be sold makes electricity cheaper for everyone. So I understand that having a strong relationship with the customers, the members, is, is really valuable to have the solutions we want. And I did throw that out, like, well, no one person can do anything, so this will give up. But I don't believe that. I just, I just threw that out. It's almost <laughs> kind of like being contrary because I actually believe the opposite is true. And and even though it can seem such a daunting task, especially for people like you who know the science and have known the science for decades, it can feel icky. It's the only word I can think of. It can feel really icky about how slow progress has been made. But the progress is there. And, and, and I, are you optimistic 
I am. I am optimistic because I see solutions like that electric car that I'm driving as being rewards in themselves. I, I don't feel like I'm sacrificing to drive that car. I love the car. I love technology, and that's a big part of why I got it to begin with. But it is much more economical to drive than a gas car. And I think once people realize that, we're going to see a snowballing effect where more and more people are going to buy electric cars. I tell people, don't invest a lot in a gas, a new gas car today because in a few years, you're going to see the value, the resale value of that car drop dramatically. Right. Okay. So, um, uh, thank you so much. Um, and, uh, um, and I appreciated it. Greg Rock from, uh, Carbon Washington joining us earlier. And thank you so much, Bill Middlecamp. Um, and again, if people want to learn more, where should they go? Oh, uh, Citizens Climate Lobby. And Citizens you can also- Climate Lobby. And the uh, URL for that is citizensclimatelobby.org. And, and you can feel free to check out your website um, uh, or your uh, your email as well. If you yes, Google elect Bill Middlecamp, that's like middle of the road camp in the woods. <laughs> and you're listening to Food Freedom Radio, where you come back and we're going to talk about the Charlie Awards. Seward Co-op, serving the community for nearly 45 years, invites you to shop their two convenient locations, both offering the strong commitment to local producers and healthy foods you've come to expect. Seward focuses on locally grown and raised products, fair trade, and environmental sustainability. Shop their selection of meats, artisan cheeses, and house-made baked goods. Find Seward at 2823 East Franklin Avenue or the Friendship Store on 38th Street and 3rd Avenue in Minneapolis. More at seward.coop. Crooner's Lounge and Supper Club is delighted to offer its spacious facilities for your private function. From weddings, retirement parties, business dinners, or any special occasion, Crooner's combines a dedicated, full-service special events team, an award-winning chef, and a beautiful lakeside ambiance to make your event a resounding success. Visit croonersloungemn.com to learn more about their private dining options, or call 763-571-9020 to get a quote for your next event today. This is Chad, owner of AM950. Our station has worked with Barbara from WYSIWYG Web Design for years on everything from logo to print design and especially for developing our website. She does great work and is great to work with listening to what our goals and design ideas were while offering new, innovative ideas to create the website we are proud of today. Barbara made sure she understood our station, our goals, and our mission before she started working on our site and made suggestions to help control the cost. Plus, she's friendly, which set us at ease. I recommend Barbara at WYSIWYG Web Design because I know she will deliver an attractive, professional website within the budget you have. She is a local independent business that specializes in helping other local businesses achieve their website and design goals. She can work with nearly any budget and create anything from simple sites to robust custom functionality. To find out more about the company AM950 Trust, go to WYSIWYGWebDesign.com. Spelled out just like it sounds, WYSIWYGWebDesign.com. This is New Beginnings, hosted by award-winning broadcaster and speaker, Freddie Bell. Freddie, this generation of the baby boomers, people are living longer, so the baby boomers are taking care of elderly parents. Let's talk about your health, and specifically, let's talk about Medicare. Our show features the concerns of America's 78 million baby boomers in employment, finance, health and nutrition, and even entertainment. Join us for New Beginnings, Saturday mornings at 11, brought to you in part by Vision Loss Resources. This President's Day weekend, bring your family to the Osprey Wilds Environmental Learning Center, formerly known as the Audubon Center of the Northwoods, on Grindstone Lake in Sandstone. The all-inclusive family weekend has locally sourced meals and winter activities like ice climbing, wildlife programming, skiing, and much more. Reserve your spot at ospreywilds.org or call 320-245-2648. Osprey Wilds, experience your environment. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person really wanting like some sense of unity. Unity, not conformity. That means we're all standing up and living life and enjoying it. Uh, maybe maybe it's not even enjoying it sometimes. That's, never mind. <laughs> That's a little, whatever. This segment, we're going to be talking about an event that happened this last week, um, the Charlie Awards. And joining us to talk about this is Nancy Moreau. Hi, Nancy. Welcome to Food Hi. Freedom Radio. 
Hi, Laura. Thank you very much. Thank you. So tell us, uh, what is the, the Charlies? The Charlies are now in their ninth year, and they are, we're calling them kind of the Academy Awards for the local food service community. And what is so exciting about it is everybody from the chefs to bartenders to um, catering companies are always asked to provide their, their talents and their products for other nonprofits or charities or good causes. So this is a chance for them to actually be on the other end of it and get the awards and the accolades for what they do. So it's everything from outstanding chef to brewery to uh, hidden gyms, restaurants that are kind of favorites, but sometimes people don't remember them because um, they're going after all the new ones that are opening up. So let's talk about some of the uh, award uh, recipients. Um, let's start with the, uh, the Community Hero Award. We had three really great candidates this year, and the person who came up and accepted the plate was Emily Hunt Turner, and she is a civil rights attorney, and she is the founder of a really cool program called All Square. And it's a toasted cheese restaurant, plus they've got other services. And what they do is they they hire and train and um, they work with people who are coming out of the penal system. So they are giving them a second chance and some of the job skills and um, job experience that they need for when they go back into the community. So, yeah, that All Square is a restaurant uh, serving um, really fancy grilled cheese sandwiches. It's a great place. And Emily was really, um, it's so fun to see people come up on stage and, and accept it because they don't know until the night of the event, which was Sunday night. And we actually were right before the actual Academy Awards, which was kind of a funny juxtaposition. But she was uh, really uh, grateful, and they tell a little bit more of the story about what they're doing. So it's a very fun um, and heartwarming night of, of awards. Awesome. And then uh, who won uh, Best Chef this year? Best Chef was Jack Rebel, and he is the chef owner of the Lexington, and he's got a new restaurant in the uh, airport as well. And he was he was kind of the, the favorite. He's um, had some health issues, so it was really great to see him come up on stage. Choked up a little bit. He thanked his mom and his wife for standing by him and, you know, everybody in the, in the restaurant. So that was really a, a very heartfelt moment as well. No, we've had a couple of chefs on this show, and um, I don't think people realize what a difficult job being a chef is. I mean, it's a it's an intense occupation. It really is. It's physical. I mean, they're on their feet a lot. They're they're moving quickly, but it's also very mentally taxing too because uh, you've got a lot of things coming at you at one time, and so they do deserve you know every accolade they can get. It's a, it's a tough job. And uh, so some of the other awards you offer, um, uh, Outstanding Restaurant Cheer? Yep, uh, Outstanding Restaurant Tour. That was, um, went, this year it went to Blue Plate Restaurant Company. And what was really kind of interesting is last year's winner, Luke Shimp from Red Cow and Red Rabbit, his sister and her um, partner won the award this year. And unfortunately, she wasn't able to be there. Uh, which would have been kind of fun to see a brother present the award to his sister, but he did get to present it to his former brother-in-law, um, David Burley. So that was that was a exciting moment as well. Great, and an outstanding brewery. That is Fifty Six Brewing, and so that uh, is the second year that we've had that category, and it's kind of fun because uh, with that, sometimes you get really big companies up against smaller ones, and they have just um, one. One unit, so they were up against Dangerous Man Brewing, which also has, I believe, one unit, and Surly Brewing, which is the uh, the large one. And so that was a, a nice moment for him, uh, for the two owners to come up on the stage and accept their award. So even though there's some competition, it's also more of a collaborative place and a playful kind of um, competition, would you say? Yes, and I think that is what is so great about this industry is um, I know when the, the founders originally came up with the idea, they, they didn't tell people who were, you know, who the, the winners were or really even the categories because the thought was that, you know, if you're not going to 
win, you're not going to come. But that is proved to not be true at all because everybody, whether your your company is winning the award, you've worked probably with a lot of these chefs or bartenders at some point in your career because they do move around a lot. And so, yes, it's very, um, very much a camaraderie and a, a ex- you know a, a excitement for the person who is coming up on stage. Lots of cheering and clapping, and um, it, it just is very gratifying to see that. And so what is the purpose behind these, uh, the Charlie Awards? Well, in addition to um, just honoring the food service industry, it is also the proceeds will go to Open Arms, which is a nonprofit that has been around for years. It started out delivering home-cooked healthy meals to HIV patients, and since that time it's broadened out so that it goes to anyone who is suffering from uh, an illness that that can't get out and and, um, we call it life-threatening, I guess I should say, illnesses. But also the caregivers and sometimes the children will also be able to get some meals. So it's just a a way that if you're you're not feeling well, you're not going to really be cooking great meals for yourself, probably not eating healthy foods. So this is a way to make sure that you are actually staying healthy while you're going through all of this or as healthy as you can be. So, uh, Nancy Monroe, you're with Food Service News and uh, producer of the Charlies. Um, and this Charlies has been going on for nine, nine years. Um, and uh, we'll probably go on next year. You'll be celebrating your 10th. We will be. And hopefully the 11th and the 12th and on. <laughs> but right now we're tired and we just want to make it to the 10th. <laughs> so um, why does uh, Food Service News produce the Charlies? Well, we were uh, involved when it was being run by a different organization, and they approached us. And we think that it's a, just a great fit for what we do because we're a B2B publication for the food and beverage industry. And so to be able to honor these people is, is something that I, I think is right in our wheelhouse. Great. And then uh, tell us some of the other, uh, about the, some of the other award winners. We have just about a minute left. Okay. Uh, we had uh, bartenders, and it, we had two women and one man up for bartenders. And it was interesting because the, the, the women were both involved in mentoring other women to get them into this industry. And Trish Gavin of Lat 14 was the, uh, the person who took home the Charlie Awards. And she does beautiful drinks and has a lot of experience doing drink programs. Outstanding Caterer went to D'Amico's. It's a 25-year-old company. They're kind of the, the largest uh, catering company with a lot of venues, and so that was really kind of exciting for them. And um, Outstanding Coffee House was the first time we offered this award, and Spy House uh, Coffee Roasters was the winner there. Awesome. We're going to have to stop. But I, I, I thank you so much, Nancy Moreau, uh, with uh, producer of the Charlies and with Food Service News. Um, and I thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio, um, the progressive voice of Minnesota.